Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Gail Bainbridge. So just before I get into the episode, just to say that there are tickets on sale for my masterclass event in February. It is Thursday, the 27th of Feb. And if you want to get tickets for that, you can just go to Eventbrite, put in my name. Graham Walcott Productivity Masterclass is the, the name of it. And uh, you'll get more details there. Basically, it's a full day. It's in Angel, uh, really close to Angel Tube and just on the main high street there in Upper Street at the Business Design Centre. And you're going to spend a whole day with me really revamping and revitalizing all of your productivity systems. We do it all on the day. You bring your laptops, you bring all your paperwork, all that stuff. And we basically get you under control by the end of the day. Deliberately small groups. There's never more than 25 people there. Uh, lots of one-to-one time to answer questions and lots of time for you guys to all share your thoughts and ideas on how to make it work for you with each other as well. So if you want to come along to that, we'll put a link in the show notes. If you go to getbeyondbusy.com, you'll find a link straight there or just go to the Eventbrite website and just put in Graham Alcott Productivity Masterclass and you'll find it from there. So let's get straight into the episode. This is Gail Bainbridge. Gail is someone I've known for a while and just has a really interesting story about setting up a business, a very successful accountancy practice here in Brighton, Bainbridge Lewis, and then going solo, as you're going to hear, um, traveling around the coasts of the UK um, and really starting to think very differently about money. Interesting that an accountant then becomes someone who uh, has different perspectives on money. Um, But yeah, really interesting conversation. And we're doing this down the line using Zencaster. So because Gail is nowhere near Brighton right now, she's uh, somewhere on the coast, as you're going to hear. So here's my conversation with Gail Bainbridge. Um, I'm with Gail Bainbridge. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, tell us where, so we're doing this down the line on, on Zencaster. Tell us where you are in the world, first of all. I am currently on the coast of Pembrokeshire, not very far from uh, St. David. So about as far into Wales as you can get. <laughs> cool. Uh, and in a nice, uh, comfortable house? No, well... no I'm not uh it's not a house I am in a nice comfortable caravan Uh, caravan. yeah so and this is a static caravan this is a static caravan yes I've bought this as a as a bit of a base because this is an area that I love um it's a place where I feel grounded and connected to nature um and so, yeah, the opportunity came up this year to buy a caravan, and I have. And so I'm spending a bit of time here enjoying the scenery. So I'm looking and at you the sea. Me, <laughs> yeah, you just told me before we pressed record that um, you feel like you got cold coming on and you just went out onto the beach and uh, got some fresh air to try and fight the cold. Yeah, I've I've had kind of like a low-level headache for a few days now, and it feels a bit like a cold coming on. And I was about to take some tablets, and I thought... I've been indoors for a couple of days, getting some bits and bobs done. And actually, maybe what I'll do is go and sit on the beach and breathe in some sea air and see if I can shift the headache that way instead. Nice. Um, I was, Seems to have done the trick so far. <laughs> I was thinking if you've got a beach near where you live, you should definitely make use of it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a beautiful beach as well. I swim on it quite a lot, but the waves are a bit big at the moment. I don't swim on the beach, I swim in the sea by the beach. <laughs> nice. And would you swim all through the winter? Well, I haven't done so far, but I've met um, a really amazing group of ladies down here and they swim all year round. So I'm being encouraged to. Okay. So we shall see. Apparently it has some very uh, great health benefits, cold water swimming. Yeah. Do you know what? I'm sure it does, but I'm too much of a wimp. So do you know what I need to change to not be so much of a wimp? Like, <laughs> is, is there a technique? Is it about... No, there's no technique. You need um, a large group of people going, come on, <laughs> <laughs> as they all jump into the sea squealing, um, and then you kind of feel left out. So that that seems to do the trick. And then what you need is some really warm clothes for afterwards and a flask and a hot drink and maybe even a hot water bottle. Because actually, once you're in, it doesn't feel that cold. But when you get out, oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. Although the so last, yeah, time, <laughs> last time I went swimming in the sea near Brighton was, well, this says a lot in itself, was um, not the summer just gone, but the summer before. So like I've just had a whole year where I didn't. 
And so before that, I went. We went walking for a day, and we ended up at Berlin Gap, which is a beautiful little spot mm, um, along the Sisters Walk. And um, a few of my mates were like, "Let's jump in the sea." And so we did, and they were all just having a lovely time. And I was just sat there going, oh, my God, it's freezing. And it was a really hot day in July. So that's how much of a wimp I am. I think there's, there's, um, I have some work to do, I think, on yeah, how I do possibly. <laughs> you get used to it. The first, um, they reckon that the first minute after you get in, you really feel the cold. And then yeah. your body adjusts to the temperature that you're in. Um and you could stay in for a bit longer. Obviously, when it's really cold, like five degrees, you don't want to stay in too long. But you've got to get your shoulders under as well so that your body can adjust to the temperature of the water. So you okay. might, if you're, if you're standing half in and half out, you're always going to be cold. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe you just have to throw yourself in and, um, and yeah, just use that as the way to get over these things. Mm. Okay, I'm going to work on that. Um, so I've, I've known you for a few years and we've sort of met... Uh, sort of intermittently and when I first knew you you were we we would end up at lots of networking type events in Brighton together in your previous incarnation as (laughs) one half of the dynamic accounting duo Bainbridge Lewis Indeed. Um, and um, I think your story since then has been really interesting so I wanted to get you on Beyond Busy and and uh, have you tell that story but should we just um feel a bit like this is your life now should we just go back a little bit to <laughs> the founding of Bainbridge Lewis so you you started oh, wow, a accountancy yeah. firm um he, here in Brighton uh so tell us about that how did it come about and um what were the sort of key steps in getting going with that okay yeah wow going back a bit so that was actually yeah. uh 2010 that we founded Bainbridge Lewis so Carol and I Uh, Carol was my business partner. Carol and I uh, worked together in a different firm of accountants, a larger firm of accountants. And we sat next to each other day in, day out. And we had these grand ideas of how we were going to, how we could do it better and how we could be more customer focused and spend more time working with people on their businesses than telling them how much tax they had to pay. (laughs) <laughs> so we just <laughs> we wanted to do it in a different way. So that's how it came about. And we started off, oh, it was, we started off, we just bought a couple of laptops. It was very basic. And we sat in Carol's front bedroom, which we'd converted into a small office. And we pretty much just went to every single networking event that we could for about six months until the business started picking up. So it was, it was quite interesting and actually quite good fun, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and it worked. We we did do business differently and we did make some really good friends with some of the uh, people that we worked with along the way. And we ended up growing the business to, I think we had six employees at the biggest point. So Carol and I, six employees and an office. Yeah. Um, and eight years that was that was going for. Cool. Um, and when you leave a bigger accountancy firm, what's the deal with, so obviously you would have loads of ex- existing relationships there that presumably you can't transfer and you have non-compete clauses and all that kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. We did. We had we had non-compete clauses there. Um, so we actually started from nothing. We didn't have a single client. It was quite funny the first week when we'd sit there. You know, we'd never started a business before. And looking back, this is quite funny because we would both we were in such a habit of working a nine to five that despite having no customers and no work to do, we would turn up to Carol's front bedroom and sit and look at each other all day, thinking about how we might get some clients. <laughs> And it didn't dawn on us at the time to make the most of that kind of slow time in the business yeah, by, you yeah. know, taking time off and enjoying the summer. And, you know, we were, we, it was almost like been drilled into us for so long that that's what you did. Then it was difficult yeah, to break right. that habit. <laughs> Although also in that early stage of a business, there's also that mentality of, quick we've got to do this now got to start getting some money in got to grow it you know there's that real sense of oh, urgency absolutely. And momentum around any um, business 
Absolutely. And we still could have said, right, what we're going to do is sit down, focus, spend a few hours working out where we're going to get customers from, and then we'll take the rest of the afternoon off because we don't actually have any customers yeah, yet. Yeah, <laughs> there's actually anything else to do. <laughs> Instead of let's sit here and really keep going at it and at it until we can't think of anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, what did you learn as being, you know, from that experience as being your, your first experience of starting a business? Uh, that it was harder than I thought it was going to be. You know, you're kind of like, oh, it's great. Uh, everybody needs an accountant. People will just fall over themselves to sign up to this new way of being an accountant where we're super friendly and we speak in plain English and we wear jeans. People will love that. Mm-hmm. So you know, imagine our surprise <laughs> when no one had heard of us, so nobody was signing up. So I think that was the thing. We thought that it would be really easy. And actually, it takes a concerted effort to get out there and get known and for people to even know that you exist. Yeah. And then there were the kind of funny things. So I think on week two or three, I needed to send a letter to somebody and I had to ring my old secretary and ask her how to get the gap right so that the address appeared in the clear window. (laughs) (laughs) Never had to do that before because I always had a secretary. (laughs) So you also have to wear all the hats, don't you? You yeah. start your business and suddenly you're the IT guy as well as the, you know, secretary and you're the finance person and you're the marketer and, you know, you're everything. There isn't anybody to go, hey, could you just? <laughs> so I think that was probably one of the things that we learned. And then actually the the later learning from that was, as soon as you can afford to stop doing everything, pay somebody to do the things that you're not that good at. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so on that note then, of all of those different roles, were there any that surprised you that you thought, actually, I really enjoy this and I've never done it before? Or were there ones that just filled you with dread and you made sure you outsourced as quickly as possible? The biggest surprise for me... <laughs> was how much I disliked the day-to-day work of being an accountant. <laughs> and how, <laughs> but actually how much I enjoyed the conversations that I got to have with the business owners. Right. So stepping away from behind the spreadsheets and the numbers and getting into people's worlds and understanding what's important to them and what they're worried about. And I found that I really loved that side of the business way more than the form filling which was a huge surprise to me Mm. um and luckily for me carol always loved a form so (laughs) that worked (laughs) quite well (laughs) so complementary skill sets yeah absolutely absolutely so then fast forward uh i i guess not quite eight years but but towards the end of that eight years you then decide that you want to sell your stake in the business and move on Mm -hmm. um so let's uh, just forward to to that period of time. So you you you've still got the business. You're still working. Yeah. But some thoughts are starting to enter your head about what next, and you, you wanting to make a change. So what was going on for you there, and what was um what were the sort of main drivers of that change? Um, I think I'd been sort of rebelling against my own business for a while. So as the business grew. It became, I I got out of the habit of working the nine to five that I was in and I became quite flexible with the way that I worked. And then as the business grew, it almost demanded of me that kind of role again, having five, six employees that have questions and needs. and, Mm. And then there's an expectation from customers that you will be there in the office to answer the phone and answer their questions between normal working hours. And so I suddenly felt like, although it was mine, I'd almost created my old job for myself with some slightly different parameters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I started to crave a bit more freedom again. Yeah. And I think the turning point in what pushed me to make the decision was Carol um, took six months off uh, maternity leave. She was off to have her baby. And in that time, I ran the business on my own, which was great, but challenging after all that time working together. 
And when she came back, I said, hey, great to see you. Um, I'm going to take a month off now to recover. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did. And for that month, I I hired a car and I traveled around the coast of Cornwall mostly, but some of Wales, kind of just staying in Airbnbs and in youth hostels and just, yeah, generally hanging out on the coastline of the UK. And I was like, ah, this is amazing. Mm. (laughs) I need more of this in my life. How do I get more of this in my life? Um, And it was at that point I thought, I think I'm done with what we've created. I've taken it as far as I want to. My passion for it has, has gone. And so coming back from that month, was difficult <laughs> and faced with the conversation of with Carol of yeah I'm I'm ready to go now so yeah. we need to talk about that. Had you had you guys like. talked before about what your exit strategy would be? Because obviously you know when you have a business partner you have to you know you kind of need to know whether you're both in it for the long haul if or if one of what you want out and stuff like that. Like what what have been your conversations before that? To be honest, we'd had those conversations when we first set it up. So we'd yeah. done some very basic um, stuff in our agreements about how we might value the business should one of us want to leave. But we've always been pretty open with each other and able to have difficult conversations. It's part of why it worked so well. Yeah. So we kind of left it open in that we said neither we, – we had an agreement that if one of us wanted to leave – we would give the other person at least six months to sort that out and we would help do that. We wouldn't leave each other in the lurch. So, yeah, that's that's how I came at it. it was, I will, I'm, I'm ready to go and we need to start making a plan. So then you leave Bainbridge Lewis and Bainbridge Lewis becomes Lewis and then moves in with a, another accountancy firm. And so then you kind of start this transition, which... It's probably around about the time I met you last summer, not the summer just gone, but the summer before we were at um, mm. Happy Startup Camp together. And it was one of those where I said, oh, hey, how are you doing? And then uh, you told me about three lines just as we were about to go into another session. I was like, what? I want this to be a half an hour conversation. And now we've got to go <laughs> and listen to something else. Um, so um, tell us about that transition and, um, and, and uh, what started to emerge for you since then. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's probably the biggest story. So I knew I wanted to do this traveling, that that's what had come up and why I wanted this gap. And I knew having now sold Bainbridge Lewis, that I didn't want to leap into something else. I wanted to create some space to figure out what I wanted to do next. Yeah. Um, and so I bought a motorhome, which wasn't on my list of things to do in life. <laughs> but it <laughs> it seemed to fit really nicely. I wanted to travel, um, and I knew I wanted to travel around the UK and around the coast. And um, actually, a friend of mine said, but you're a real homebody. How are you going to cope for a year without feeling like you're ever at home? And I was like, mm. oh, that's, a, that's a really good point. You know, because I'd had this vision of airbnb in it around the country or something like that. Right. And she said, have you thought about a motorhome? And I said, no, never. <laughs> and then I thought, but that's a really good idea because then home is with me at all times. Yeah. And so that's what I did. I bought a motorhome in May of 2018 and I just set off. And so I spent almost 18 months traveling around the UK kind of planning two or three steps ahead of where I was and just it's hard to it sounds weird just being just being and just exploring um and I discovered that I love hiking way more than I thought that I did Mm. I used to hike as a social thing like I'll go walking with other people because it's nice and we get to talk and be outside and actually solo hiking is something else Mm. it's i kind of describe it to people now as a moving meditation because you switch off from everything you know you're 
you've not got your well you could have your phone with you but you're not staring at your phone or connected to your devices you're not generally having a conversation with yourself although actually for the first 20 minutes that's what my brain tends to do reminds me of lots of things that I may or may not have done like when was the last time you rang your mum and <laughs> food shopping and um and then after that kind of initial 15 20 minutes it goes quiet mm. and you just get to walk and be and be present and be out in nature and because you're quiet you see quite cool things as well the wildlife gets quite close to you when you're on your own and being quiet yeah and so I've just found that that process of walking sometimes for like eight hours (laughs) at a time has just been so therapeutic and I've seen so many amazing um views and yeah so I love hiking um and I did quite a lot of reading and generally that's pretty much all I did for about nine of the 18 months Mm. amazing Um, and just yeah got used to being on my own it was yeah interesting I really want to delve into that a bit more because it feels like I mean this podcast is called beyond busy right and you've just (laughs) described the sense of busyness when you have your own business and everybody has demands on you and then suddenly you're into this this period of time where you have such a lot of space and ability Mm. to uh you know to have that freedom to make your own decisions of where you want to go and if you want to hike for the day you can hike and if you want to read you can read so just tell us a bit more about uh maybe just paint a picture of maybe a couple of the sort of typical days um i'm imagining that not every day is the same but there are kind of certain patterns to certain days maybe yeah Um, i guess so i mean i tend i tended to stay in a place for a week because okay. that felt like a nice amount of time to be there yeah um anything less than that i'd feel rushed like i didn't get to see everything <laughs> yeah right um and anything more than that i'd start to be like oh what's next so that was quite interesting to learn and mm. i didn't start out like that i started out i'll do three days here and three days there because i need to get around really quickly and see everything and then it was like uh, i don't Okay. That's interesting. How like the mind sort of unravels a bit, and suddenly, what was three days before suddenly becomes seven days now. And yeah, absolutely. And almost like if I didn't travel fast enough, I wouldn't get to see enough things. Mm. Was this was the initial mindset, and then it was it slowed down, and I carried. So I'm one of the things I was worried about was spending a lot of time on my own. This is a little bit of a tangent, but. Um, And so I have some very good friends that are very good at um, noticing if I'm acting a bit weird or if there's something going on with me. So I arranged to continue to talk to them at a set time every week. Okay. As a kind of like, and and mornings normally. So I think it was Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday morning, I had a half past eight call with somebody, which was quite a nice, like, are you okay? How's it going? Um, you know, you are still connected to the real world, huh. uh, which was nice. And in one of those conversations, when I said about I'm moving every three days and it feels rushed and I don't feel like I'm doing the relaxing, they said, you do know that Wales isn't going anywhere. Mm. And that if you don't see everything on that particular part of the coast that you're on at the moment, you can come back. And I was like, oh, yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like this urgency that I'd carried from my work life was still there to start with. So I slowed down and it became a week. And then one day would be um what I'd call a life admin day. So I'd find some shops, go and do some food shopping, cycle to the shops, do some food shopping, put some laundry on, clean the van, change the bed in, all those kind of things. So I'd set aside one day for that. Okay, so doing that in a a kind of batched one day thing rather than than doing little bits of that all the time. Yeah, quite weather dependent though. I'd check the forecast and I'd try and pick a rainy day for that. Okay. (laughs) Um, And then I'd have another day where I'd do some planning. So often on the day that I arrived somewhere, I'd get out the kind of guidebooks or get online and say, right, what is in this area? What do I want to see? 
have a look at bus timetables because when you're driving a seven meter, three and a half ton vehicle, you don't always want to take that to the local and tourist attractions. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, what is in the area? And confession, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to medieval castles. So quite a lot of my stops involved castles. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'd sort of do a rough plan for the week, but not a I'm going here on this day and at this time for this long. It would be these are the things I'd like to do while I'm here in some sort of order. And then day to day would be, and this is my favourite part, I'd just wake up and see what I felt like doing. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. I didn't set an alarm for the entire time that I was travelling. So sometimes I'd wake up and think, I don't really feel like doing anything. I'm going to make a cup of tea and get back in bed with a book. Yeah. And other days it'd be like, right, today I really want to get out and explore. So I'll get my walking boots on and go for a stomp or get on the bus and go into the local town. And so all of that was played by ear, but based on a loose, I've got an idea of what's in the area that I might want to see because I've had a quick look. Nice. Yeah. Um, And then if I didn't get all the things in, I'd adopted this. uh, I think someone used this phrase at summer camp, the joy of missing out. (laughs) Like, okay, so I didn't see all the 15 amazing things that there are to see in this area um because i decided today i wanted to read a book instead of walk up that hill yeah and that's good too yeah a bit of jomo yeah a good thing so yeah that was kind of it really <laughs> that, that was my life for nine months and were there any particular things apart from the fact that you worked out you loved hiking what did you learn about yourself in that time period ah <sighs> that's interesting I I learned that I need to have a human connection on a regular basis, even if that's a chat with the bus driver or the local shopkeeper. Mm. So um, if I spent a whole day on my own without speaking to anybody, the next day I would actively seek out human connection and live human connection, not over the phone. So right. actually standing face to face with somebody and having a conversation. So that was interesting to know as well that I needed that level of interaction, even if, like I say, it's a mundane conversation with somebody in the shop. Yeah. I travel quite a lot on my own as well. Mm. Um, And I, you know, really love sort of exploring different cities in the States and watching baseball games and all that sort of thing. But I always try and stay in Airbnbs that are hosted by someone, you know, where you just have a spare room rather than the whole place. Mm -hmm. And part of my thinking behind that is this, you know, partly logistically, it's always good to just have the local person. I was in um, Baltimore this summer and it was so good to just be able to say to them, which streets are actually safe for me to walk down? Because Baltimore's a scary place. Um, You know, if you've seen The Wire, you'll understand why. But um, (laughs) I've always kind of, um, you know, really liked hosted Airbnb for that reason, that you get that local knowledge, local logistics. But it also just means that your day is sort of top and tailed or at least one of those things um, by like a conversation with your host, right? They're like, oh, how's your day? Okay, cool. And it's nothing, you know, much more than that level of superficiality. But just knowing that you have that that sort of one conversation during the day, almost like guaranteed. Um, Because I can sometimes sit at baseball games surrounded by thousands of people and not talk to anyone. And that's just uh, who I am and what I like to you know how how I like to roll with these things but it's nice knowing that you have like that little bit of, of conversation time yeah absolutely and interestingly when you're on your own more people talk to you anyway yeah that's true. so if I'm out hiking and I bump into other hikers they would yeah. tend to stop and have a conversation with me and be interested in what I was doing and what I was on my own and um we'd get chatting about my life living in a motorhome which most people apparently are quite jealous of <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think people are going to be very jealous listening to this. You know, maybe the most jealousy-inducing thing is that you didn't set an alarm for nine months. That's probably the thing that most people are going to take away, right? I still don't very often, but... (laughs) (laughs) It was one of my, um, what does success look like in life? Not setting an alarm was one of mine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One of mine, on a a very sort of similar vibe, because I think both of these things have some interesting narratives behind them around freedom, I think. Mm. But mine, for a a good couple of years, 
my sort of visioning uh, time at the sort of end of the year, planning for the year ahead would always be, I want a level of financial freedom so that I can go and do the work I love wearing my brown corduroy trousers. And yeah. the and the, the assumption there was that I have to be so sort of carefree about people's opinions before I'm able to go wearing my brown cords um, and I have to wear a suit until then. And mm. then what happened was one day I just woke up and just thought, I'm just going to wear the brown corduroy trousers today and I've I've made it now. And I sort of stopped thinking about the sort of jam later um, aspects of it financially and just thought, I can just I can just decide that I'm successful now. Yeah. And then put the brown cords on and go and do my thing and no one will care. And of course, I went and did the gig and no one cared at all. Yeah. Um, and it's probably yeah. a similar sort of uh, thing, right? There's a kind of freedom element to knowing that you uh, are able to not set an alarm too, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and the freedom thing, it's interesting you say that because I think that's one of the things I went in search of was freedom. Mm. And one of the things that I discovered is that for me, freedom and belonging are at, on a pendulum. Mm. <laughs> and if I have just freedom, I feel alone. And right. if I ha- yeah. And if I spend so much time with other people that I don't feel free, that's also feels trapping almost. So so there's a real fine balance for me in that freedom and belonging exist together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I totally relate to that. And I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of the day. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Um, Was it when you were walking that you started to think about money as well? Let's, let's talk about your, um, your new incarnation and the course that you're doing about money. Um, when did those ideas start to percolate w- with you sort of questioning what money was and people's relationship to money? Well, I'll be honest, it started um, probably about nine months in. It turns out my brain, having had nine months off from doing any real deep thinking about anything other than how pretty everything was and how, <laughs> um, how in awe I was of the planet, it needed something else. So that was that was entirely driven by my brain. And I started reading books and I started reading some books. I actually stumbled across one in a secondhand bookshop, which is also something I did on my travels a lot, wander around secondhand bookshops. Mm. Um, And I thought, ah, so I don't have a never ending supply of money. (laughs) I have some money because I sold my business and I probably need to think about what I'm going to do with the rest of my money and how I can be wise about that. And so I actually started looking from a completely selfish perspective of how can I manage my money better, make it last longer and maintain this freedom that I've created for myself. Okay. Um, so it was purely um, for myself. And then I started looking into it and I was like, wow, there's actually quite a lot of things around money that you don't learn as an accountant. Yeah. Uh, So our relationships to money and the way that we think about money and how we're not actually ever really taught anything about money Um, and some real basic stuff on money management that as an accountant, I can calculate your taxes and I can keep all your business finances in order. But when it came to managing my own money, and I've written this in a blog somewhere, so it's not a, a massive secret. I'd spent my entire life as an accountant in debt not wanting to tell anyone because they might think I was a bad accountant right and so this is the first time actually that I wasn't in debt and I was like I really need to learn more about managing my own money and so it started from there and I just got completely fascinated by it and read more books and listened to podcasts and Mm. really I'm really fascinated by the relationship that we have to money and the thoughts and beliefs that we have around money and how that can get in the way of us either looking after it or earning more. Um, So that's quite interesting. But initially what I did was I came up, I'm also, despite being very good at spreadsheets, I don't like things that have to be done in a lot of detail. So I was like, there's got to be a really nice, simple way to manage money without having to track every single penny on a spreadsheet because that feels quite dull to me. Um, And so I kind of picked up bits from here and there of what I thought was useful information. And I created my own system for managing my money. Um, 
And interestingly, a great time to do that because the technology is kind of on your side. And I use a system of of pots to manage my money. Um, and so what that means is I put money aside for the things that are important to me. And so at that point, I started paying myself a pseudo salary from what I had left. So it's like, okay. ah, I'm going to tuck away the rest of the money. I'm going to pay myself a monthly salary because it will help me to think of it as a, it will help me to manage it when it's coming in bit by bit rather than looking at this vast, not vast, <laughs> what was a large amount of money to me. <laughs> <laughs> if it was vast, I probably wouldn't be uh, working at all. <laughs> um, and so I set up this really simple system. I was like, wow, this makes it really easy to stick to what I want to spend on the different things and to actually give myself permission to spend on things. So I'd started to get to the point where I was becoming quite frugal, thinking, oh, I need this money to last longer. And actually that wasn't that enjoyable. I mean, it's quite a frugal life anyway, living in mm. the van. Um, so I, I designed this system and then I thought, oh, I think this has really helped my sister. So I taught it to her um, and she had a little bit of resistance to it. She won't mind me saying. And then, <laughs> and then she embraced it and she rang me like a few months later to excitedly to tell me she'd just bought the kids new bikes without having to have massive discussions with her husband or break the bank because they'd secretly been squirreling away money for the last few months into this new bike fund that she'd created wow. as one of the pots so she said so I basically think saving up for something right i mean this is um you are basically saving up for things yeah. but by hiding it from yourself right okay so our, our brains are equally very clever and very stupid you and i'm sure you <laughs> are quite aware of this yeah so when we move money out of our main day-to-day account and put it somewhere else that we can't see it we sort of forget we've got it. Mm. And so we are looking at a smaller amount of money that's in our day-to-day pot thinking, oh, there's not as much left as I thought, so I'll slow down my spending. And it, that all kind of happens subconsciously. Right. But actually, you've already scribbled some away. Whereas if you do it the other way around and you try and get to the end of the month and save what you've got left, then invariably there's nothing left. Yeah. So it's just a little kind of brain trick. But what I really wanted to do is to have people think about what's important to them because I've loved my journey so much and I know now some of the things that are important to me, like having time on my own and walking and being by the sea and being able to visit my friends. And it's like I can't imagine not doing those things. So how do people who are living really busy lives and working and getting to the end of the month and not having any money left how do they make sure they've got money for the things that are important to them so that they're not continually stuck in this hamster wheel yeah and that's what i wanted that's now what i find really interesting so i then taught my mom the same process and she's managing their money better and my sister said i th- i really think you sh- you're on something so i thought i know i'm gonna I'm going to sell a course to somebody. I should say at this point I hadn't written a course, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I sold it to somebody. I sold it to a, f- uh, a friend, somebody who actually used to be my client when I was an accountant. Um, and so I wrote it for her week by week as she went through the program and she cool. loved it. And so then I sold it to some more people and I tweaked it and, uh, so there's about 30 people have done the course now and yeah, they all get, what's fascinating is they all get something different from it, Yeah, but, but everybody loves it. Um, and I'm, I'm still fascinated with money. So I've still got more money books that I haven't read yet. <laughs> I, think I think money's a really fascinating subject, probably because it feels very taboo mm. and there's a lot of secrecy and shame and guilt and all kinds of emotions get attached to money, don't they? But in in another way, I guess money is how you make decisions about money is very indicative of your philosophy for life, right? Like, Mm. are you a kind of all in right now kind of person or are you all a, or are you more like a kind of security for later kind of person? I'm just wondering if you've seen archetypes or personality types or, uh, patterns in the people that you've taught and coached in this 
and how you know, just kind of different are there kind of different ways that people see money that people listening to this podcast might fit into and sort of recognize as as the way they see it absolutely so there's definitely <clears throat> I, I haven't named them and i've just started actually doing some work on um the personality types you know the 16 personality types and how that might link in with the way people are about money but that's it uh, i'm just doing a bit of research stage but yeah, people like tend the to, yeah types. like the myers-briggs type stuff and and actually does that have an indicator on how people are but essentially there's two types of people when it comes to having savings there's people who save and are almost afraid to spend it mm. and then there's people who spend it all like it's burning a hole in their pocket <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's and those are the essentially the two types of people i've come across um when it comes to money um and that's quite interesting to me the the two different sides and the way that i work is that people get to explore the type of person that they are and challenge themselves, but at the same time design the system so that it works with them yeah. rather than trying to change who they are fundamentally. So I will mm. challenge it, but I won't say, oh, you're a saver, stop doing that and do this. And it's like, well, what would you like to be spending money on? And if we could figure out a way that you felt secure in what you've got and you gave yourself permission to spend some of it in a I guess what I teach people is to make the decisions not on the spot. So if, for example, you are a saver, what I might suggest is that you want to look at what your savings are for and give them a purpose rather than just having a big pot of money that is, I don't know, making you feel secure in some way. It's kind of like, well, how much do you need for that? Yeah. And, if you had some money, say, set aside for your retirement, but then you also had some money set aside for emergencies, because let's face it, life never quite pans out the way we expected. And then there'll always be something that comes and um, knocks us off balance or throws us a curveball. Then what would you want to be spending your money on? Like, And do you want to be saving for things to spend rather than saving for things that are locked away for the rest of your life? Um, and conversely, that works for the people who don't like to save at all, because if they know that what they're saving for is to give themselves access to something, then saving becomes more appealing than putting it into a bottomless pit where they might never see it again. So giving themselves access to like an experience or a new car or whatever. Yeah, and people do this differently. Yeah, Yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, Yeah, people... do that differently as well so for me i'm quite broad brush with it i know that i like adventure and travel surprise surprise so i have a pot of money that's called adventure and travel and it doesn't need to be any more granular than that for me whereas some people would prefer that they've got a pot that says the holiday to barbados in 2021 yeah right and 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 that's personal as well for me it's it's about what do I need to be doing in my life so that I'm living a life that fulfills all my values? And one of those things is travel. Another one for me is personal growth. So I have a personal growth fund. Mm. Whereas some people, like I say, like to take it to a more granular level. They're like, yes, I do want to travel, but I need to know how much I'm saving for and for what trip. Right. So that's just yeah. a slight difference in personality. And that's what I'm interested in with the the Myers-Briggs stuff. Some of it, um, if you're um, an explorer type, for example, you're less likely to be worried about the future. So you're probably less likely to be saving a lot. So, yeah, it, this this is an area I'm completely fascinated in how people's personalities um, yeah, influence, I guess, the way that they save. But the other thing that is a huge influence is your life experience. So if you've experienced having money or having no money or you know, whatever life was like as a child, that will also influence how you are with your money. Yeah, massively. Um, mm. what, what are the patterns there that you've noticed? 
<laughs> you either do the same as your parents or the exact opposite. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> or you're some combination of the two. So this so is the yeah, whole you... sort of, um, are your parents generally your role models or are you rebelling against certain aspects of, of how they brought you up? Yeah, because... Thing, right? Absolutely. And let's face it, it's probably the only people you learn anything about money from. Mm, because you don't yeah. get taught it in yeah. school. It's like you said, we said earlier, it's not something that people openly talk about. It's taboo. So you don't really discuss it, your money management with your friends and peers. Yeah. So you've learned it through experience, either from your parents or from people who've been trying to sell you stuff, you know, bank managers and financial advisors. Not that they're all not nice, lovely people it doesn't give you a rounded view of money in the world. Right. And I was also going to ask you about, do you feel that your attitude to saving has changed since you got out of debt? And just has your attitude to debt changed from living with debt for a long time and then getting out of debt? What's the, what's your reflection on, 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 on kind of debt generally? Cause I'm just, I, and I suppose the reason I asked that just to, just to kind of add this in, is there might be people listening to this who feel like, well, I don't have any money left at the end of the month. I don't, I'm not able to save. And mm. maybe my first, the first thing I need to do before I can start saving is to tackle that debt or get wiser about that debt or think about it in a different way or break some some other narratives. So maybe there's maybe there's a whole sort of another level of, of that help. Um, yeah, yeah, there is. Kind of, I mean... Um, beginning times, yeah. Absolutely. My... Um, the work that I do, the main focus isn't on debt and getting out of debt. That's not my area of expertise. But um, in terms of how I feel about it, I would say I'm now slightly debt averse. Yeah. Having been in debt and now not in debt, I pro- probably try and avoid it. Um, I think that there are good reasons to use debt. Um, I don't think that using debt to satisfy a monthly shortfall is a good idea. So by that, I mean, if what you've got going out every month is higher than what you've got coming in, you've got an imbalance. And if what you've got going out every month is higher than what you've got coming in, then your debt will just grow and grow and grow. And that's going to cause you a massive problem eventually. Yeah. Um, If you use debt for, um, and this is a personal opinion, obviously, if you use debt for something that is going to um, potentially bring you more money. So you pay for a course that you're going to learn a new skill that's going to increase the amount of money you can make, then that could be classified as, I don't know, good debt. I mean, I try mm. not to give morals to things. <laughs> Useful debt, I yeah. guess, would be a better word than good debt. Um, and obviously things like investments. So if you were... Well, I was just thinking that's an investment, investment, isn't it? You know, if, you, if you're investing... Yeah, in it's an investment in yourself, yeah. isn't it? So I think debt for investment purposes. If you, for example, are buying a buy-to-let property and you're going to make money out of having it, then you would not consider the mortgage to be something you know, the same way as you would pay in your day-to-day outgoings. So I think if debt is used for investment purposes, but other than that, I guess for myself, now I'm not in debt and I have that luxury of not being in debt. I don't want to go back there. Yeah. Um, And for people that, there's a lot of um, charities out there that help people get out of debt. And there's a lot of uh, money people out there that do advice around debt. But ultimately, you know, you've got to get to that point where what's going out and what's coming in are at least equal mm, before you yeah. can even start to tackle. And then I would say that saving is a habit. So even if you're paying off a debt, if you saved a pound a month, it would create the habit of saving. And then as you found yourself coming out of debt or get into a better position, you could start to increase that and you've created a habit. That's interesting because you often hear the advice that there's no point in having a savings account if you've got credit card debt because mm. paying 20% interest on your credit card and earning 1% interest on your savings or whatever. And like that's logically true, right? Yeah. But 
money is also about habits and psychology and, and challenging your own narratives and all of that, right? So starting that saving, even if it's a pound, yeah, you know that that pound is not going to be the, op- that's not the optimal use for that pound on paper, but it's actually but it's a pound. pretty good <laughs> yeah. use of that pound from a, a psychology and sort of self-development point of view. Absolutely. Yeah. And then there's the, when you get to increase it to two pounds or four pounds, then you're like, yes, I'm starting mm. the savings. You know, it's kind of like an achievement. Yeah. And I get it. It's, it's difficult when things are tight. Nice. Um, do you, what's your own attitude to money? So money for you is about freedom. Like, have you had times where you've been fearful of money or you've been, uh, sort of coveting money or have there been kind of important narratives in the past for you about money? (laughs) Absolutely. I don't think it ever goes away. Um, (laughs) I think that the, the stories and the beliefs that you've built up around money, um, don't just disappear. Yeah. You just become aware of them. Um, can you change them though? Can you change them? You can, I guess you can. I think it's a practice. So I think the first step is to know that you've got them because then once you know you've got a story or a belief going on, you can notice it when it steps in. <laughs> and you can, if you, the first step is noticing, right? And then you notice, you're like, oh, that story that I've got about money has kicked in. Yeah. And then you can take a step back and go, do I want to follow my usual pattern based on knowing I have this story or do I want to do something different but you can't interrupt the pattern until you're able to notice that you have one in the first place Mm. that makes sense yeah and so I still have a pattern when I'm very generous person by nature and one of the things I've noticed is when I feel like I have a shortage of money my focus shifts to how can I get money rather than how can I give to people? Mm. How can I support people? Yeah. And my aim is always to give and support. So when I notice that I feel like I need to get money or make money, I know that something's running some old pattern. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. And so, did so you feel, would there be times where you're feeling that in the last year or so, even though it's like, you know, I've, I've got these savings that I can uh, live off for the next little while or whatever. But So, yeah. So the other thing that I've noticed has shifted, and this sort of links to the question you asked me earlier, um, actually links to a couple of things we've said. I think there's, when you don't have a salaried income so when you don't know where your money's coming from yeah the amount that you want to have in your emergency pot increases somehow naturally so yeah i guess caused by the uncertainty of it all so if you've got uncertainty going on you kind of want a bigger safety net for yourself so this is kind of where I find myself at the moment. So this is my interest in personal challenge at the moment is that my safety net is dwindling because I've been on this journey for a while and I'm still developing my new business. So what comes in at the moment is small compared to where I would like to be in the future. It's still growing. And I'm conscious that I want to grow my business in a way where I'm taking time to do it the way I want to do it, not mm. just rush forward going, but I need to make some money now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so for myself, I've noticed that where my pots are now is just starting to feel a little less safe, shall I say? Right. Yeah. And so I've noticed that creep in. Where it's, and, and then I have to go and have a look and go, well, let's go and look at all the pots because I've hidden it all from myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can reassure myself and go, oh, no, it's okay. We're good. It was just but a trick just, and it worked. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's an interesting conversation I've had with a few people. Like, what is the safe amount for you? Mm. And um, What's the consensus? Because this feels like something that no one ever talks about, right? 
Well, I don't think there is a consensus. I actually think it's very individual. And I think it's your gut that tells you rather than your brain. Yeah. Because, you know, your kind of fear is felt in your gut. So it's more like you if if you don't feel like it's you've got enough in your safety net there's like a fear feeling going on like a gut instinct of oh i don't quite feel safe mm. and so i play around with this with some people and say well you know close your eyes and have a breathe and think about an amount of money and does that then make you feel safe yeah and if it doesn't then go up a bit until it feels like it does and then let's look at what that amount of money is and why that's the amount of money because then we can go into our brain and go well what is the fear yeah and that's the other thing i've noticed is that people's fears are different so it can be quite primal the fear in this area so i haven't got any money let's say is where your brain goes rather than something logical like there's a bit less than i'd like it, you know it likes to over dramatize doesn't it the brain um i haven't got enough money and therefore i'm going to end up homeless and alone and starve to death and I'll die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it gets quite radical. Yeah, my, um, my I, lizard brain gives me exactly those fears about money if things aren't going well, right? Like it's that's always the... Uh, uh, yeah, but yeah. really interesting. There's it's a different fear that some people have, which is I'm going to look really stupid. Yeah, right. So it's not I'm not going to be safe. It's if everybody realises that I've not got a handle on my money... Mm they'll all be really disappointed in me and think that I'm completely stupid. And, and then I'll be shunned. The tribe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's really interesting to me, this mm. two sides of the, two different ways of the fear kicking in. Because yeah. I assumed everybody's would be like mine, which is, you know, ultimate death from starvation. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can go and look at that, can't you? And go, is that true? Yeah. If I run out of money, am I going to starve? No, I have some very lovely friends and I exist in some very wonderful communities. I'm probably not going to starve. But yeah. It's, yeah, I think I there's maybe think... something within that as well of the survival thing. It's like there's a sort of um, pride thing about mm-hmm. having to ask for help. So you, you probably know logically that you wouldn't starve. But the reason you wouldn't starve would be because you're relying on other people. Yeah. And so asking for help feels like... Uh, you know again a, a kind of being outcast from the tribe or people looking badly at, at you for that or something like that yeah yeah and then the other argument that people would make is is it really that difficult to make some more money mm. or is that about the way that we think about money as well have we been conditioned to believe yeah. that it's hard to make money yeah i had a, I had a, a business partner for a little while who once said to me a sentence that changed my life, which she just said, if I ever felt like I'd run out of money, I, I know that I could just go and make a million. <laughs> wow. I was so shocked by it. And then I, and then it stayed in my brain for a few weeks. And then I realized that she just had less of a limiting belief than I did. Mm. And it was like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm as skilled as all the people who've, made lots of millions I could I could go and do you know and so it just it was really interesting she actually came from quite a a wealthy background of a Mm. self-made millionaire father and so obviously she'd that's a thing that she'd seen modeled in her childhood growing up is her dad making a million and and whatever but just knowing that she could run out that she didn't need the safety net that I needed which generally is like I want to have six months of my my sort of base operating expenses yeah in the bank at all times and that and that makes me feel safe and yeah totally based <laughs> on the 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 logic of it would take me six months to figure out what else to do so if the company went bankrupt or uh, I decided I didn't want to work in that area anymore. I could take six months and retrain or I could, it would take me yeah. six months probably to find another job or whatever I wanted to do. And so I always kind of look at it as that kind of six month safety net, but to sort of hear it from her perspective there, maybe think, well, probably if I had no safety net, 
then I'd still take six months. I would just whack it on a credit card and then I would make a million. So it'd be fine. And so it just sort of turns around the whole way of thinking about it. And um, yeah. yeah, it was quite a, it was quite a, quite a revelatory thing. And if you didn't have the safety net, you might push yourself further outside your comfort zone in order to make the money. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Which is another, another conversation probably. <laughs> yeah. And I try, I also try not to have the um, mindset that, you know, a lot of people have this mindset that it that as you get more money, you shift what success looks like to the next jam later stage away from where you are. And I've mm. always tried not to do that, but I, I think I definitely do. You know, there's like that. Um, there was a study that found they interviewed lots of millionaires and business owners, and they said, "How much money would you need to have in your bank account for you to stop working?" And the answer was universally the same, but it was universally different because the answer was basically three times what they had in their bank account right now. <laughs> so it's like everyone's looking at their own situation and comparing it and saying, if I have three times what I have now, I'll be fine. And so someone who had 10 million, they needed 30 million to be able to give up and retire. And someone with a million just needed three. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and, I, and really... I think I probably do that to some extent. Like I'm pretty good at not, I, I'm not an extravagant spender anyway. Um, you know, so, I, so I, I'm pretty good at keeping the expenses side on a similar level even as the income has gone up but i do think there's probably elements of that at play there where i like 10 years ago if i looked at where i am now i'd probably be delighted but now i'm still slightly dissatisfied and so mm. there's always, i think there's always that going on isn't there well that's that's the uh eternal enoughness question yes isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and interestingly that brings me around actually to where my thought process started which I think I was in Bude, on the coast near Bude, and I had this thought that I didn't think I'd ever felt happier wow. or more content mm. or more fulfilled than I was in that moment. Yeah. And none of that was to do with how much money was in my bank account. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so for me, that's the other side of this is, and it's where I started and I'm glad you've reminded me of it, was like the word wealth um, actually um, didn't originally relate to money. Um, and it comes from an old English word that is well-being. Um, and that's where I started this whole inquiry from. Like, what's important in wealth? Is it a monetary wealth or a wealth of well-being? Mm. And because so, you can have a wealth of so many things you know you could have a wealth of seabirds flying yeah, across the ocean yeah. you know wealth doesn't have to relate to money and then i think that's a fine balance because i can live this the life that i've created at the moment very frugally indeed yeah and do i then get to impact as many people as i'd like to yeah. So when you talk about people that are um, struggling to make ends meet, how do I impact them having a better financial education? Um, how do I help people that can't afford my course? How could I bring financial education into schools better? These are mm. some of the things that I think about and having more money is a way to do that. <laughs> so it is possible to live a frugal life. In fact, it's probably almost possible to live a life without any money but then you would i think still be stuck in a story about money yeah right in that you'd be avoiding it <laughs> but it sounds like it would be nice to not have any uh kind of story going on around our money and it just being something that you use in your life yeah it's actually one of the reasons i, I realized over the years i i tend to only do one sort of beach holiday a year i do other bits of travel but um, the time when I sit on the beach tends to be in the winter in Goa. And mm. one of the things I really love about Goa is you pay a reasonable amount of money for the flight. Flights are about five, five or six hundred pounds. But when you get there, everything's cheap. So to stay there is about ten or a night. Meals are about two, mm. three quid. And so I feel like for that week or two, when I'm sat on the beach in Goa, you can set up a tab with the bar that where you're staying and whatever, and really just not have to think about any money or 
you know transactions or whatever and, I, and there's something really nice about just taking that away isn't there and just yeah. you know, having the just knowing that what i choose on the menu it doesn't matter you know if i want an extra thing i can have an extra thing like like to just know that none of that matters whatsoever it's yeah. quite a nice um thing and and you know not to say it always is the forefront of my mind the rest of the time but it's nice to know that you can just switch it off a little bit yeah i completely agree and i think that's part of the beauty of the first nine months of my traveling yeah. was that I didn't think about money at all, really. <laughs> I just moment, got on with it. <laughs> and this moment imbued sounds to me as if, you know, that the what I'm taking from that and part of the revelation from that for me is that you can uh, just be present in the moment and that actually has nothing to do with all of these numbers on a computer screen or in your bank account or whatever it's actually just it's almost inconsequential absolutely yeah which honestly feels like the best place to end any good ending i was like i don't know if i've got anything to say after that <laughs> yeah and we've just done an hour so um, let's uh finish with uh how people can connect with you and i would love people to as part of this episode, be inspired to do your course. So uh, give us the details of how people can find out, sign up and uh, hear more. Yep. So all of the details are on my website, which is galebainbridge.co.uk. So they can find out there about my course and the other bits and bobs and read my uh, erratic blogs about money. (laughs) (laughs) And I really love your emails as well. I'd encourage anyone to just um, subscribe to Gail's email updates as well um because i really like uh getting those in my inbox and you always kind of make me think about money in different ways so um yeah thank you as well yeah fab um and uh it's probably inspired me a little bit too i've got all the i so i've paid for your course and have it all in my um my read folder ready to go and uh, this has definitely inspired me to make the time uh and sort of uh, uh push it back at my priority list with having um put it on the back burner with my book and been so mm. focused on this book but um yeah good i'm, I'm sure glad I, I do that and maybe i'll share some insights about that on a future podcast as well um but again just thanks so much for being on beyond busy it's been uh, great having you on and um really thank you chat. i've really enjoyed it So thanks again to Gail for being on the show. Thanks also to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show, and to Podient, our hosts. Thanks also also to Think Productive, our sponsors of the show. If you are interested in productivity workshops, if you want your company and your team to be more productive, less stressed, and have a team of people that really love what they do, uh, then go to thinkproductive.com and you'll find out a range of workshops there uh, from our flagship how to be a productivity ninja workshop through to getting your inbox to zero how to fix up meetings lots of other stuff so go to thinkproductive.com and you'll find the local think productive office in your part of the world so we'll be back in two weeks time with another episode so until then take care bye for now